Good morning, Highland. Please stand for the reading of the word from John 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciple set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. And the disciples returned to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning, Highlands. He is risen. It is good for us to be together today, like... David said, and Suzetta said, and Rob said, and Jeff said, we are so glad that you are here. And uh, for many of us, this is the first time we've been back in this space for a year. And over the last four or five weeks, as people have been coming back and feeling more safe to gather, I've, I've seen their expressions as they walk through those doors into the atrium, and they smell the smell of Highland. And I've seen their eyes as they worked together, as they took communion with their brothers and sisters. It's an emotional experience. I also got to be honest with you, like, this is the most crowded space I've been in in a long time. And I'm kind of freaking out. I've been long vaccinated, but I'm kind of freaking out. But... Scripture has, has a way for us when we find those moments of anxiety, those places where peace seems a little frail. What Scripture calls us to do is breathe. And so like Susetta began our service, take a breath in, 
and let it out. Take a breath in and let it out. Think for a moment as you take a breath in and let it out. The miracle that occurs second by second, minute by minute, that the God of heaven chooses to allow you to live, that the God of heaven gave you a breath. Throughout Christian history, there's been a tradition of breath prayer, and we've touched on this as a community before. You know what this is. It's when you breathe out, breathe in part of a prayer and breathe it out again. And so just for a moment, like my elders prayed for me at 930 this morning, I want you to take a breath in, and I want you to breathe in peace and breathe out anxiety. I want you to breathe in hope. And breathe out worry. I want you to breathe in grace. And breathe out judgment. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I'm grateful for this day. I'm grateful for this part of our lives together in this rhythm that we have of a calendar where we move from the, the darkness of Ash Wednesday to the, the deep sadness of Good Friday to the joy and the light and the sunrise of Easter. And Father, as we greeted the rising sun this morning, we greet your son in this moment, that Christ is risen, that the power of love is greater than the power of death. And that through your mercy, we too hang on to Jesus as he carries us through the wasteland and the exile and the judgment of our lives and brings us to a place of glory. And so, Father, now as we reflect on your word, as we allow it to fill our lungs, oxygenate our blood, pour through me the gift of preaching that I might speak your truth and love to these your people. And it's together that the church says, amen. So John gives us, the book of John gives us this kind of story from the very beginning of creation to the moment of resurrection. And it's a moment where the word was God and the word was with God. The word knew God and God knew the word. And in Genesis, we see that the word, the spirit, the Hebrew word for there is ruach. But if you say that in the right way, it's just breath, ruach is hovering over the waters. Literally, that is the wind of God. And we are carried through the book of John of his miracles and his steps and his words and every breath that he takes, even to the last one where he cries out in a loud voice and breathes his last. You gotta remember that in the book of John, the details matter. The details matter in the book of John, those little clues that set the scene that teaches us how to understand. Mary Magdalene comes in the dark. And the reason that she comes in the dark is because her heart is dark. It's full of worry and grief and fear. And she goes to the tomb and the stone is ajar. 
Isn't it enough that they beat him and humiliated him? Isn't it enough that they scourged him and mocked him, that they crowned him and killed him on a cross? Isn't it enough there? But there is nothing in the tomb. They also had to desecrate his body? Peter and John rush to the tomb. John hesitates. Peter rushes in. And it's important to pay attention to the details because it shows us what's happening inside. John sees an empty tomb and strips of cloth. Peter sees that the burial cloth for the head has been wrapped up and set separately from the burial cloth of the body, and he contemplates the situation. And in verse 8, John sees and believes, even though he does not yet understand. Resurrection in John is the same as the history of the Old Testament. It's not God's power that saves, although God is powerful. It is God's presence that saves. It is God's willingness to identify with human beings lost in the wilderness, filled with doubt, looking for a word that will release them from the weight of sin and guilt and shame. God's willingness to stoop down in the form of a servant and become obedient even obedient to death. It's not God's power that saves us. It's God's presence. The scene returns to Mary at the tomb. She doesn't recognize the angels, which is kind of odd. Because every other, nearly every other person in Scripture, when they see an angel, the first line that an angel must say to them is, don't be afraid. Because the vision of an angel is such that everyone is terrified. But she's overcome with grief that she just asks them, hey, where, where's the body? And then she turns and she sees who she thinks is the gardener. She says, tell me where you laid them and, I'm, and I'll take him away. Tell me where you put him and I'm going to go take care of him. Just tell me where he is and I'll carry him. And this is the moment in Scripture where I fall in love with Mary Magdalene. This is the place. Do you have any idea how hard it is to move a dead body? When my five-year-old doesn't want to move, I can barely move him. Can you imagine how hard it is to carry a dead body? She doesn't care. I love Mary Magdalene in this moment because she is going to honor her Lord. And in that moment, her Lord says her name. And there was something about the way that he said it. It was the breath coming out of his lungs, forming a word that she had heard probably since the day she was named. But this time, it's different because it was God calling her by her name. And she says, Rabbani, teacher, which is familiar. You may have heard the story of Harold Maysbeck. And if you haven't heard this story, he, he was a lawyer that was working in D.C. He was one of those kind of high-powered lawyers that was working up his way in kind of government resources. He worked at the Democratic National Convention one time. And he was on a train. He was on a commuter train heading to the city. And he couldn't stop crying. He wasn't a believer. He didn't have any faith to speak of. But he found himself every time he was on that train crying. 
He was weeping and he couldn't stop. And so he tried self-help techniques and he tried uh, visualization and he tried mindfulness. He tried every sort of way he could help himself. He even got on meds to try to help it, but he could not stop crying. And there was a moment on that commuter train where he says some weirdo, by his own words, gave him a Bible. And he took it and he opened it. And he just happened to fall in Luke chapter 1, where the angel speaks to Mary, the mother of Jesus. And, she said, and, the, and the angel says, do not be afraid. And Harold can't describe what happened on that train in very clearly articulated thoughts. All he can say is, in that moment, I stopped crying. In that moment, I felt something that was transcendent and sublime and the most ordinary experience he could have, all wrapped up in one moment. Do not be afraid. But the tears came back a few days later, and he again opened Scripture to Luke 1, and he read the same line, do not be afraid, and it stopped him from crying. It was a few days later on that same train, on the same line, heading back to the city, that he had a vision of Jesus speaking to him on the train. Just as real as there was a person six rows up, just as real as that person was, Jesus was before him. And Jesus said to Harold, Skip, do not be anxious. I will take care of everything. Harold was his given name. But Skip was his familiar name. It was the name that his friends and family called him. Imagine God calling you. It's not that moment like when your mom calls you when you've made a mistake and she inserts your middle name. Outside I'm playing, I hear Shane Warren Hughes. I have a choice. I can either run for the hills or face it. It's not the voice of judgment. It's not the voice of, of infamiliarity or formal, uh, formularity. I didn't think through that word very clearly. Um, it's, it's not that word. It's not that sense. When God calls you, when God calls Mary, when God calls Skip, he calls you by an intimate name. Jesus calls you by your love name, not by your formal name. Because when God breathes your name, it is intimate and it's forming and it's resurrecting. In the Old Testament, there's a book called Ezekiel, and Ezekiel is, is a prophet, and he's serving during an age where Israel is in the wilderness. They're not following God faithfully, and, and, and it's not going well for Israel in terms of their relationship with Yahweh because king after king after king has failed them. And God takes Ezekiel to this place where there was a battle at some point, and the, the bodies have all desiccated. It's just bones, dead bones in that valley. And God says, look what I'm going to do. And God breathes breath, and those bones come to life. God, in Ezekiel's breath, made dry bones walk, grow sinew, muscle, and skin. And on another hill of dry bones, a place called the skull, God so identifies with death, it no longer has any mastery. And God frees us from death, or 
rather, God allows us to become so identified with Christ that death no longer has any consequence for the believer. It's not so much that you're going to be freed from the pain of death. That's going to happen to all of us. And we've experienced way more than our fair share this year, if you ask me in my opinion. It's not so much that you're going to be freed from death. It's that our identity has been so shaped by Jesus the Christ that death has no consequence. Peter and John have gone home. In fact, for the rest of the book of John, the disciples are going to be behind locked doors or going back to their old lives at every moment after this one. They don't understand what the resurrection means. In John chapter 20, we continue. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house of the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord, and Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I sent you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus breathes on the disciples, and and in this moment in John, this is the great commission that we see in Matthew and in Luke's second version of the gospel. This is Acts chapter 2 where they receive the Holy Spirit. It's both of those moments rolled up into one moment. And with this, the presence of God's breath, a moment where we catch our breath, and the moment that catches our breath, takes our breath away, We receive the Spirit of God. I want you to think back a year, if you can do it. Easter a year ago. What's changed for you? For some of us, our lives have been pretty good. Some great things have happened. For other of us, deep tragedy has occurred. What's changed since last Easter? What changed for the disciples after this moment? Well, at least John seems to say not very much at first. They just kind of go back to fishing is the next story that we tell. But then the spirit begins to take hold and the world changed. And so I want us to spend some time experimenting over this next year until next Easter. I want us to spend some time experimenting with what it looks like when we lean into the embodiment of a breathed-on, lived-out people. What does it look like when the spirit that you received at your baptism in that moment where your world changed, what does it look like if you begin to live into what that looks for your life? I have a great story I want to tell you. There was a man, and um, he was doing some research. His last name is, is Root. He was doing some research about Christian experiences. And um, he was talking to a woman in Seattle. And the only reason he was talking to her, he's like a researcher, professor type. The only reason she's talking to, to him, it's clear to see, is because her preacher pastor said, hey, I want you to do this thing. Spend 30 minutes talking to this guy. She's not into it. She doesn't care. 
And so he's going through his questions that he's going to ask. It's kind of a sociological survey to kind of feel out to do his research. And at the end of the deal, it's been kind of a waste of a half hour for him, a waste of half an hour for her. And, and so he just asked one more question. It wasn't on the sheet. He just asks one more question. He says, how have you been ministered to by Jesus lately? And her eyes light up. And she says, I've never told anyone else this story, not here at my church, not anyone else, but I'm going to tell you. This woman was married, and she had two kids, and her, her, her husband was traveling from Seattle to Chicago for a business trip. And he'd been gone about 22 hours when this woman gets a call from the hotel where uh, he was staying. And, and the hotel manager says to her, ma'am, I'm sorry, I don't know how to say this, I'm really sorry, but... Our cleaning staff found your husband dead in his hotel room just a few hours ago. And, and for that woman, there was that moment, I don't know if you've ever had that ringing in your ears after a loud sound, where you can't really hear anything else, the rest of the world is muffled. That happens to her over the phone in that second. And the manager says, uh, they've taken your husband's body to this hospital morgue. You can retrieve him there. I'm going to give you that address. And she doesn't even remember writing down that address, but she writes it down on a card. And then she looks over, and her, her four-year-old and her two-year-old children are playing in the living room, and they have no idea. And she realizes in that moment her life is never going to be the same. And what happens next is a complete and total blur. She gets someone to take care of her kids. She books a flight. She gets on the flight. She flies to Chicago at her airport, and she gets off the plane. She has no recollection of any time between that phone call and her stepping off the plane. But she finds a, an Uber uh, driver that's willing to take her, and, and so she sits into the, the back of the car, and she hands the man the card that she wrote on uh, just hours before. And the man looks at the card, takes off and begins driving through traffic. The driver pulls up to the, the hospital at the entrance to where the morgue is. And she doesn't really realize it at the time, but it's, it's kind of weird because he pulls in and parks instead of dropping her off, which is what normally an uh, Uber driver would do. And she goes inside and she walks down some stairs and it's one of those linoleum hallways that has that smell that only you smell in the basement of a hospital. And uh, there are people there to receive her and they say, I'm so sorry, ma'am. In just a moment, I'm gonna take you through these doors and we're gonna show you your husband's body and we need you to identify to confirm that's who he is. And so she walks through those doors, and she's standing at that wall of steel cabinets. They open one and pull out the tray. Her husband is in a bag. And again, she realizes, in just a moment, I'm going to see my dead husband. And my life is never going to be the same. And they're about to open the bag. And she feels a hand on her shoulder. And another hand reaches in front of her and hands her a bottle of water. It's the Uber driver. He later says that his cousin had died at that same hospital. And so when he received that card, he knew exactly where that woman was going. And he thought to himself, she shouldn't be alone in that moment. And she was right. 
as she identifies her husband's dead body and begins a life of raising her two children by herself, her life will never be the same. But she learned the truth that in that moment, even though her life would never be the same, she is not alone. In some way and somehow, I wonder if that is what it means for us to live out a breathed-on, lived-out life. I wonder what it looks like for us to be those kind of people. Because you know what happened? I guarantee you that this happened, is that about four or five days later, when that Uber driver went to church, he's going to tell that story. He's going to say, guys, I can't, I can't believe, you're not going to believe what, what God did in this moment. You're not going to believe the opportunity that God gave me to be the face and hands of Jesus to a woman who had lost everything that she knew. And so I want us to spend some time experimenting with what it looks like when we lean into that embodiment. The table brings us back to this moment. The bread and the cup remind us that Jesus' body was not broken and shed in vain, for it was God's good pleasure to raise Christ from the dead, and now he reigns forever. We're going to share this moment of communion together. And we remember that Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Say that with me. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, for your body and your blood, we give you praise. For the way that this changes our life, this moment changes our life, we are never the same. So Father, now as we remember your son Jesus and the miracle of the resurrection, fill us with your spirit. Let us live lives renewed, resurrected, resuscitated as we live and walk in faith. Through Christ we pray, amen.